Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the DW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Leah, this week you have a story about a new task force. Right. So you know as well as I that one of uh, President LeBlanc's uh, key pillars when coming on as president was, well, both undergraduate experience and also just bolstering the research efforts at GW. And this task force is really going to be trying to give faculty more of a voice in different concerns that they have about both the research process, kind of deciding what research they want to do, what research is going to be prioritized, but also getting funding for their research, which has been an area of concern in recent years, especially with issues with the budget, but also there has been a national decline in research funding. That's just been the current climate for federal grants. And part of that is, too, that a lot more uh, researchers and faculty from different universities have been submitting proposals, and so it's become a lot more competitive. But that's the nature of submitting grants in every field. For this particular task force, they're looking to have about 10 to 15 faculty members serve on it. And what they're really emphasizing is having all disciplines represented on the task force. So the faculty senate already has a research committee, and that was more volunteer-based. So just faculty who are interested in representing research, kind of addressing concerns that way. But this will really be very selective. They're going to like really handpick different faculty that they think would represent everyone very well, and they're making sure that they include everyone. So in the past, one concern has been that STEM is highly overrepresented, but they want to make sure that this particular task force also has a lot of humanities faculty. They want to make sure that every school has at least someone who's representing them. And why did they decide to do such a big emphasis on like cross-disciplinary? Right. So There have been a lot of complaints about humanities faculty not getting prioritized for research. A lot of faculty have said that the humanities isn't as valued when they're delving out money for research projects. So um, I think the common misconception that faculty have addressed is that, oh, if you're doing an art piece or writing a book on some period in history, that's not really research. But what they want to do and what LeBlanc has told faculty is that he really wants to redefine what research is. So making sure that, you know, if you want to go on sabbatical for a few months and write a book, that should be considered research and that should be also prioritized when deciding who gets funding. So it's not just your typical researcher in a lab, you know, with test tubes. It's also someone who's going out and maybe producing a play or getting students involved in compiling work for some kind of art piece. So is the original Faculty Senate Committee going to be involved at all with this new task force? Yeah, they're going to be slightly involved. They're not going to make up the task force itself, but what they're going to do is help bring to light some of the concerns that they themselves have heard and make sure that those are kind of getting the ball rolling for talking about those within the task force and then also helping pick the faculty. Although I think Provost Forrest Maltzman and also Vice President for Research Leo Chalupa will be in charge of picking faculty. And I know that uh, Dr. Chalupa has sent out some emails and just inquiries of faculty that he thinks would be good to serve on this task force and just people who have uh, brought up concerns to him in the past too who would um have definitely like a strong voice. Is there any particular agenda for this task force so far? Are they just kind of working on developing it? No, there's not like a set agenda yet, but the faculty have said that they're really hoping that 
funding is addressed, mainly making sure everyone's getting equal funding, but also looking at aspects in addition to finance, like human resources. Also, just there have been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of turnover in the office. Um, so they talked about how a lot of times it's hard to hire postdoc assistants or just research assistants in general because they might put in um, a request to get an assistant and wait like months on months because there's so much turnover in the office so their request is kind of like pushed around to different people and then they have to wait a long time to even launch a project which has been super frustrating. Another thing just more generally that they want to address is that the administration has really been the main voice on what should be done about research and faculty have felt really excluded from that. So overall faculty have this common sentiment that is we're the ones doing the research. We don't want to be told who's telling us how to do our research, where to do our research, or how we're going to get funding. Of course, they need the administration to back them behind some of these things. Like they definitely need them like when they're applying for grants, like they oversee that process. But a lot of faculty have said, we're here doing what we love and we're not here because somebody else is telling us what to do. We want to be able to design our own projects and pursue areas that no one maybe thought to pursue. And that doesn't mean that we should be following some cookie cutter method of pursuing different projects. Harald Grieshammer, he's a physics professor, but he also serves on the faculty senate, echoed this concern that the administration has really been overshadowing the voice of faculty when it comes to research. This is something that the administration cannot do because the administration is here to support research. If somebody would tell me what kind of research I have to do, I would refuse. Right? That's mm -hmm. not why I'm in a, in at a university. So the administration cannot tell people what kind of research to do and they shouldn't, they think they know they're not in that job. Right? On the other hand, if we are looking at research support, then we cannot have administration review its own activity because then we make the fox guard the hen house. And what, what is their end goal, like as far as time goes? The, so they don't have a set time frame for any particular goals just because they haven't set them yet, but they will be selecting faculty by March and then by May the task force will have officially launched and they will start meetings and start planning. So this is only the beginning and I'm sure you will keep us updated. Yeah, and faculty said, you know, don't check in until two years later when we can actually really assess if we've made any progress. This week, Meredith had a story about university fundraising and how it compares to our peer schools. Yeah, Leah. Well, basically, the story is this week that the university is spending a lot more than most of its peer institutions on professional fundraising services, which is essentially outside consultants that come in and show them like different strategies for how to fundraise um, and also help them with tele things like telemarketing. So how much are we spending on outside people? Like it's not as important how much they spent. In this past year, they spent six more than $600,000, but the really key statistic is that for every dollar that they spent on professional fundraising, they only raised $149 compared to some of our other peers, which raised a lot more. Like, for example, Georgetown, they spent only 200000 about $200,000 on professional fundraising services but they still raised more than $300 million in fundraising. Why are there these discrepancies then between how much GW is reeling in compared to its peer schools? 
Well, basically, I talked to an expert, and she is the vice president of the Council for Aid to Higher Education, and she said that professional fundraising services are best practice for all universities, and that it's really expected that universities uh, put money into that. But she said that some of these peer institutions that GW is in, they kind of have like a long history of raising a lot more funds. They just always have done that. It's not whether or not they're using these professional fundraising services. It's just that they are doing better at fundraising than GW is. Then what can GW do to improve? Um, she said that spending dollars on professional fundraising is a good idea, but she said it just depends on what kind of services they're using. She said, for example, services like telemarketing, it takes longer to see a result for that kind of thing because for telemarketers, they're calling around to alumni and those right. won't come, like those won't be the big gifts that come in and really make uh, a year worth it for fundraising in, at GW. Is that something that GW relies on a lot, is people making calls and getting alumni donations? Um, I mean, our alumni donation, our, our alumni giving rate is very low compared to the rest of our peer schools. Um, it's around 9% right now. And actually, our the chair of the Board of Trustees, Nelson Carbonell, made a comment about how low it is. And that's why he's kind of started this volunteer engagement task force to kind of reevaluate that. And the university is hoping to get a lot higher alumni giving rate. What is this task force main mission going to be? So the task force started back in the summer and it's focusing on reevaluating what the alumni experience is like and they're kind of looking at different ways that alumni can be involved like volunteering and uh, they're trying to figure out the next steps for fundraising at GW Um, but there haven't been any recommendations that have come out of this task force other than to say that they may need more time to tackle these kind of institutional issues. Following the conclusion of the university's $1 billion campaign, which concluded in June, why is this so important now? What are they looking to do, you know, following raising that much money? I mean, that's really why the task force was started to kind of look at what are their, what are the next steps? They felt a lot of success when the billion dollar campaign was finished and that's the first time they've, they've ever raised that much money. Uh, so that was a very big deal, but they, the officials do recognize that there is a problem that kind of needs to be addressed. Will this task force sort of keep the momentum going then from the billion dollar campaign? The university does want to keep the ball rolling. They raised more than $100 million uh, last year in the final year of the campaign. And obviously that is something that is encouraged and uh, the administration hopes to keep going. How are we comparing to our peer schools? How much are they spending relative to GW? Yeah, well, most of them are not spending as much. There are some outliers like Tufts University spent $1.2 million on outside fundraising. And yeah, it's, it's a lot more than we are spending. They spent the most alongside with Wake Forest University, who spent $1.5 million on fundraising. There's actually three schools that don't spend anything on professional fundraising services, despite experts saying that that is considered best practice to, to spend money on these professional services, because why would you not do anything that could help you bring in additional dollars? And I also spoke to another expert who is the director of planned giving at 
Tulane University, and she said that it is is easier if you have a smaller staff to bring in these people who are who can kind of take care of strategy, and sometimes they even do fundraising themselves. Thanks for keeping us updated on the university's fundraising efforts. Yeah, I'll definitely be keeping an eye on this in the future. Looking forward to it. Liz and I are here to discuss something a little more wholesome than what we are used to. Yeah, sure. So our story this week is about students who are over 65 who are taking classes at GW alongside traditional age college students. So how do these seniors end up taking these classes? Most of them are auditors, so they're taking these classes just for fun. They're not taking any of the exams or writing any of the papers associated with it. They're just going to class. Um, So they're taking it like not for a grade or any credit, just for their own learning. Yeah, I've had a couple in my classes and I'm always like interested as to like how they got their start. So this is really cool. Yeah, it is interesting. And I also had a student like this in one of my classes this semester. Um, So that's what really inspired the story for me. And our reporter actually talked to that student. His name is David Collette, and he is 69 years old. And he's actually in an American Studies class, which is all about the 60s in America. Oh, wow. So that's he fits right in. Did he go to college in the 60s? He did, yeah. And he actually went to GW Law School in the early 70s. But before that, he was an undergrad in the 60s. So he's very familiar with a lot of the content and things that we're talking about in class. So being that he's gone to GW twice now, does has he seen any changes with the campus? Yeah, so he graduated from law school in 1973, so it has been a few decades since he's been back in Foggy Bottom on campus, and he said most of the changes that he's noticed are things um, like buildings and the campus, and of course, the students being a different age and him being a lot older, he notices differences with like how they interact and that kind of stuff. So what was he getting out of this 60s, this class in the 60s? So it's really interesting to be in the class with him because, of course, he lived through these times and a lot of the 60s was based around like activism on college campuses and that kind of stuff. And he was on campus during that time. So he has a really unique perspective. And he said that he kind of tries to limit what he says just because he is an auditor and he's not he's just there to learn and take the stuff in and doesn't want to take time away from the professor or other students. But he does weigh in every once in a while with his own experiences and how he remembers the time, which is interesting. In the 1960s, 60 class, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm, I'm reliving a lot, a part of my um, uh, sort of formative year. So just that, it's not really a comment. It's just listening to and being reminded of things that were very important to me when I was in my high school and college years. So Liz, what can you say about any of the other auditors you interviewed? Yeah, our reporter also spoke to Alan Ingber, who is a student here. He's 72, and he was formerly the managing director at Citigroup, but now that he's retired, he had some extra time and wanted to return to the classroom. So why did Alan want to come back to school? Well, he said that now that he was retired, he had a little bit of extra time, but it wasn't a decision he expected to make. Having gone to law school at night for the last three years while working in the day and doing army meetings on weekends, I swear I never foot, set foot in school again. Mm-hmm. I avoided it very strenuously my whole life. Um, but this is the time of life that I, I could just go to get knowledge in an area 
I, I like. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's good. It's great. So what is his relationship like with the student body? Well, Alan told our reporter that he sometimes has trouble getting around and will ride an electric wheelchair to class. And he said that students have been really helpful with that. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, I've always been curious about the auditors in my classes, so this was really illuminating, Liz. Yeah, me too. I'm glad our reporter could work on this story. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Leah Potter and Meredith Roten and features culture editors Liz Preventure and Matt Dines. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, managing editor Tyler Loveless, and assistant copy editor Emma Tyrell. And music is produced by Olk Studio. See you next week.